Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Ion Veterans ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with BiteClear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. BiteClear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. There are nearly 20 million military vets in the U.S., and each week, we focus on their stories. This is CBS Eye on Veterans. Welcome back to CBS Eye on Veterans. I'm Navy veteran Phil Briggs, and uh, really excited to unpack this next story because uh, it's a feel-good story. It's a story of generations of refugees, and it's a story about the good work that uh, the Jewish Federation of North America is doing and how they're making a difference with our allies in Afghanistan, a subject that I know is so near and dear to every veteran's heart. There are the ties that bind us together as humanity. And when you can hear how these next two will share with us a story of that being tied together, it's a beautiful thing. And hopefully give you a little light in these dark days. So with that, I want to introduce my friends now. Darcy Hirsch, director with the Jewish Federations of North America. How are you, Darcy? I'm great. Nice to meet you, Philip. Thanks for having us. Also, by way of the Jewish Federation, we have Jonathan Cantor, who's going to share with us a story that's multi-generational. I swear, when you're all done with this, Jonathan, you're probably going to turn this into a novel. But uh, welcome to CBSI on Vets. Thanks so much. Happy to be here. All right. Now, we're talking about the refugees and the allies that come to America seeking a better life. And before we tie this directly to Afghanistan, this is woven into your family tree. Share with me how this kind of begins World War II, Holocaust era, your grandparents. Yeah. So uh, my grandparents, uh, Sonia Sklaver and Irving Sklaver, they had different names back in Poland where they were born, but they were actually born in the same town. Uh, they were born in a town called Hosht, which was part of Poland uh, and is now since World War II been redistricted to Ukraine. So it's now part of Ukraine. And my grandmother was about 11 or 12 years old. When uh, the Nazis came, my grandfather was about 13 or 14. And so, you know, I think a big decision for Jewish families at that time was, is this the real deal or uh, can we stay? You know, because I think you hear the word pogroms, for example, in Jewish history. There were plenty of times when, 
you know, it was kind of a false alarm, like, hey, we can continue to live our normal lives and, and feel like we're going to be okay. But there were also, um, you know, times when it wasn't very safe to stay. And there was some real persecution to the point of uh, it's, it's not safe. So what I had heard from my grandparents was a lot of the younger folks, you know, teens, early 20s, felt it was safe to leave. And a lot of the older folks, as it is, you know, common today, wanted to stay. So uh, on my grandfather's side, I can tell his story first. He came from a farming family. He had four other brothers and he was the youngest. And um, he decided with his brothers that they were going to get on bicycles and ride as far away from Poland as they possibly could and head east. My grandfather, his brothers, they all hopped on these bicycles and just started riding and were really scrappy and figured out how to uh, sell things on the black market, hide their Jewish identities if they could. There were times when one or two of them got caught. One was sent to a prison camp in Siberia. One was killed along the way. But my grandfather talks very fondly uh, of when they got eventually to Uzbekistan. Uh, the people of Uzbekistan took them in with open arms. They fed them. They made sure they had places to stay. They weren't they didn't have to really be in hiding there. Uh, and they stayed there for some time. And, you know, my grandfather always talked talked extremely fondly of them. And there's this term in Judaism called I guess we call it righteous Gentiles. Uh, essentially, which basically means, you know, people who were non-Jewish at the time, who often risked their lives in order to help Jewish people. Um, and so we honor those people greatly. My grandmother also had a similar story. Um, unlike my grandfather who left with his brothers, my grandmother actually stayed in Nazi occupation. Uh, there was an incident when the Nazis came uh, knocking at the door when my grandmother was out. Her and her her sister and her mother uh, were were killed, you know, basically in the house right away. Um, and when my grandmother came back, she realized that it wasn't safe for her to uh, to stay. So she decided at 13 years old, she had blonde hair, she had blue eyes, and she spoke a number of languages. She decided she was going to pretend to be a Polish nanny, and she was going to go door to door to try to find any family who might need a nanny. So she went from place to place, couldn't find anywhere, and was you know, very close to these shootings uh, and roundups that were happening all over the place in her town in Poland and, and in the surrounding areas. Uh, she found a family who took her in um, and things were going great for a few years. Uh, she, you know, she used to tell me that sometimes she'd be playing with the kids in the backyard and see physically roundups of Jews happening, uh, you know, from where she was standing and hear the gunshots. I mean, just horrific. But she managed to to survive. Um, and at one point, though, because she wouldn't eat meat because she was kosher, uh, the grandmother of that family, that non-Jewish family she was staying with, suspected that she uh, might be Jewish. So she sent my grandmother uh, to a Catholic priest to confess her sins. And uh, she went to the priest and she broke down. You know, she was a young teenager and she told the priest everything. I'm Jewish. Um, I, I have nowhere to go. My family is gone. I'm hiding. I don't know what to do. I, she confessed everything. And the priest gave her a cross to wear around her neck. And he said, your secret is safe with me. Wear this cross. I will never tell a soul. And you go back to that family and you tell them that you're not Jewish. And you say that I said so. And, uh, he, he saved her life. And again, talking about righteous non-Jews who stepped up people who believed in uh, the power of, of humanity, 
and really this idea that of, of, in Judaism that we often talk about, which is tikkun olam, which is like repairing the world. Um, they risked their lives, uh, these people, and they helped my grandparents. So when the war was over, my grandfather went back to his hometown. He made it back and he looked at a registry of people who had survived from their town. It was a handful of people. And one of the people who was on it was my grandmother. Uh, so there was nothing there. Uh, but he basically was on a mission to find my grandmother. And he, it's like the way he used to describe it to us was it was like finding a needle in a haystack. He went from refugee camp to refugee camp and found her, uh, along with another family that he had known in town. Um, and, you know, within, uh, within a year, they were married. Uh, they got married at one of the, uh, relocation camps in Germany. Uh, they had my aunt and, um, they decided whether or not they were going to go to Israel to emigrate or come to the United States. They came to the United States and the rest is history. But, you know, there's, there's, there's a little bit more to the story if you'd like me to continue. Um, so. Yeah, because I would imagine along the way, as they emigrated to the United States, therein again lies some help. Now they find themselves refugees. How is it they were able to make a successful transition into the States? They, when they got to the States, there was, you know, a cousin of a cousin kind of situation that had already come to America before the war, uh, made sure they could find an apartment, made sure they had a place to stay, food on the table. Eventually, uh, you know, my grandfather, I believe he started by repairing bicycles. Uh, he had a connection to a paper company, uh, ended up eventually years and years later owning his own paper company and, and running it. But essentially, you know, they had help. People stepped up, Jews and non-Jews to help him help my grandmother, help my grandfather. Um, and when in, I believe it was 1957 or 58, they moved to Fairlawn, New Jersey. And from that point on until uh, they, you know, ended up being kind of, you know, just too elderly to help, uh, they opened up their home to refugees. So from Russia, from different places around Eastern Europe, growing up, uh, there was always somebody at their house, you know, either staying there or visiting or, you know, they'd invite them to to dinner, to Shabbat dinner or whatever. Um, you know, th- there were always people around who my grandparents had helped. So these people coming in the same situation as you just described, not speaking the language, having very little to no money, not having a job, or if they had skills, they might not be marketable in the U.S. And my grandparents would go out of their way to help them. Uh, help them get jobs. In fact, at my grandfather's uh, memorial service at his synagogue, some guy came up to me and said, you know, your grandfather's the reason I'm here. You know, my dad didn't speak a word of English and he basically got contractors off the street to 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 find him an apartment and then redo it for free. I mean, he was like the ultimate kind of like, you know, you're going to do this because it's the right thing to do. Um, and, you know, you'd have people working on these apartments and all of a sudden this guy's got a place to live or this family has a place to live. So I grew up watching this and I grew up knowing that it really doesn't matter what religion somebody is or where they come from. When somebody is in need, if you have the opportunity, you step up and help them. Um, and so, you know, bringing this back to the Afghanistan stuff, you know, when I'm like everybody else watching on TV, as you see, uh, an extraordinary amount of civilians from Afghanistan 
packing into this airport, trying to get on these planes at fences, crying out for help, hungry. And I think it's really easy to just sit there and while you're watching the TV or reading a news article and shake your head and just go do something else, turn it off, act like it's not happening. But I think the amazing thing that JFNA is doing, Afghan families and Ukrainian families now here in the Greenwich, Connecticut area, by way of these organizations, you can do something. You can volunteer your time. You can uh, donate uh, goods or uh, supplies. Uh, you can open up your home and provide shelter. There's so much that you can do. And I think that if there's anything I can do to honor my grandparents and their memories, uh, it would be that. It would be helping people who need it, uh, regardless of where they're from and and what they believe. Before we get to specifically what JFNA is doing, not only, you know, with respect to Afghanistan refugees, but really across the world, um, share with me a little bit about the refugees and the connection that you've now recently made with those that helped us so much over the last 20 years. I got a call from, or I, I connected with Jewish Family Services in Greenwich, who again had received this grant from uh, JFNA. And the CEO of Jewish Family Services in Greenwich is uh, Rachel Kornfeld. And she said, you know, we have a bunch of families coming. There's about, we're expecting 40 some odd um, Afghan refugees coming to the Greenwich area. Um, but I have these two brothers and they, their families back in Af Afghanistan, they have a couple of siblings who are in different parts of the world. I think it would be nice for them to see someone who's, you know, on the younger side. I'm, I'm 38 years old. I'm not as young as they are. Um, they're, uh, teen and early twenties, but it might be nice for them to, you know, see if they can relate to a guy, uh, and, and, you know, just go hang out with them. And so I, you know, hauled over quickly to this, uh, town center kind of area where they were staying in a, in a cottage and met them. And just like the level of respect and humility they gave me, I mean, they were so kind and so grateful just from the get go. And I almost like, I was actually thinking about my grandparents in that first meeting because, you know, they're English. They could barely speak English, but you could tell they were intelligent. You could tell they have skills. You know, it was like, what do we have to do right now to give them the best opportunity possible in this country? Because I know that, you know, this is an amazing place to be. They're incredibly lucky to be here based on where they came from and they can have successful lives here. So what do we need to do to, to, in order to do that? So, you know, first place we went after checking out the beach and hanging out a little bit, getting to know each other, we went to the supermarket and I'm showing them how much things cost and, you know, how much money they're going to have to have. And, you know, they have basically zero dollars when they get there. So, you know, of course, all the volunteers that I was working with, you just open up your wallet, you pay for lunch, you pay for groceries, whatever they need. But you know that at some point down the road, it's going to shift. and they're going to be the ones 20 years from now, hopefully paying for groceries for someone else who needs it uh, when, when they come to this country. So, you know, they appreciate so much the, the volunteer work. And, you know, hopefully we're instilling in them this idea that America is a free country. Whoever can come here who has the opportunity, help them settle just like you were helped, just like my grandparents were helped. So that's an incredible story. 
And I can only imagine the look of awe on their face, too, when they get to like an American grocery store, because culturally, you know, Southwest Asia, Asia, Europe, you go to markets for a lot of these things. And then you come to, you know, our shiny, fancy, polished floor grocery stores with 50 aisles and 70 kinds of different breakfast cereals. Um. (laughs) It's insane. Actually, you know, it's funny you mentioned that because right after uh, a couple months after I started, uh, you know, hanging out with the boys. A woman who does some work, this is kind of somewhat related, a woman who does some work for me, um, for my company, uh, which is a digital marketing company called Zuzu Digital. She's from Ukraine and uh, she is basically a Ukrainian refugee and was able to get to the U.S. And I told her, I said, look, if you can get here, just come stay in my house for as long as you need. So when she got here, I picked her up from the airport. This is the summer. She stayed for five weeks in my house with my family, with my boys and my wife. It was awesome. And the first thing we did was we went to the supermarket also because I wanted to make sure she could get what she needed. Even from Ukraine, she was like, this is absurd. The amount of Siri, like in her English is, is solid. She's never, she'd never seen anything like it. We took her to Target. She was paralyzed with indecision. Like, and my boys are throwing cereal boxes into the, you know, into the cart and daddy, mommy said we could have this. And I'm thinking to myself like, oh God, what, what must she think about like this American lifestyle of just like, complete like abundance and gluttony but you know i think what we find is that it's pretty easy to get used to because like you know i i love a supermarket with a million choices and eventually i think they do too so you know it all works out in the end and with respect to the afghan brothers was there a cross-cultural moment where they introduced you to something from their homeland like maybe they exchanged i don't know like you had some chai tea and then you were able to kind of exchange something with them like some manischewitz or you know i mean is, oh, yeah. Was there um, that cross-cultural kind of food or drink exchange that's so wonderful when you travel? Yeah. So when I first met them, uh, they offered me chai. And I like chai tea because I'm used to kind of like, you know, the U.S. version of like powdered chai. And their chai was like, it was very white with milk and had like, it looked like like some sort of leaves kind of in it or green, uh, you know, stuff. And I was just like, I don't know what this is. But I, and, you know, of course I drank it and it was great. but the the big um i think thing for me was learning about the, the muslim culture um you know they are religious folks they they pray five times a day they're used to call to prayer which happens five times a day in their homeland so asking them questions about that you know helping them to with the organization to find a mosque nearby that they felt comfortable in um you know all those kinds of things uh you know we want to as much as possible give them a sense of home um, and I, I just think, you know, for me personally, I think it's interesting. You know, they, they're telling me about the Quran and asking me if I've ever read it. And I say no when they start laughing. You know what I mean? Because it's so shocking to meet somebody who hasn't read the Quran. You know, I ask them if there's any Jewish people from where they're from. They say they've never met a Jewish person before. But none of us really care. We're all just there for each other. And, you know, I, I had I had breakfast with them last uh, last week. And like, you know, it's like the familial relationship we have, it's like, they're almost like little brothers for me at this point. Like I'm always going to be connected to them. So beautiful. And it's rooted, whether it's new Testament and Christianity, old Testament Judaism, whether it is the Torah, whether, whether it's the Quran, you know, you're mentioning these elements that are just so universal and, you know, without a theological debate, when we look at the human experience, it's about connection. It's the power of connection and it's the power of love which is what was given to your grandparents, 
which what they found in arguably, you know, infinitely difficult circumstances. I mean, that's one heck of a love story, rides his bike to another country, comes back and looks on the red street. But at every juncture, love was a critical component of this. Uh, you know, the love of refugees coming to a post-World War II America, uh, the love you're bestowing on the Afghan brothers as they try to find their way. And it's just really a remarkable thing, uh, you know, that you're drawing on and really paying it forward. So thank you for such an incredible story. Jonathan Cantor from Greenwich, Connecticut. And of course, talking about the great work that the Jewish Federation of North America is doing. And here to kind of expand a little bit on that, Darcy Hirsch, thank you for joining us again. And tell me about how the Afghan refugee program, you know, pardon the pun, but the genesis of the program, if you will, uh, it's 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 amazing to me because we're looking at religions that oftentimes on the political stage and when you watch the news networks, you know, there's Judaism and there's Muslim. You know, how do these two come together? So share with me a little bit about where you see things. Sure. Um, and thanks again for having me. And really, it's just been incredible to hear Jonathan's story um, and hear about the incredible work he's doing. And I'm proud that that, that we're a part of it. Um, so let me tell you a little bit about the Jewish Federations of North America, just, just for some context. So we are an umbrella organization representing 146 local Jewish federations around the country and 300 smaller uh, network Jewish communities. And we are local Jewish philanthropies that raise funds to support social welfare, social services, and educational needs, and really to build flourishing communities, both for, for the Jewish community and, and the broader community. And Jonathan mentioned Jewish Family Service of Greenwich, which is one of the beneficiary agencies of the Jewish Federation of Greenwich that provides social services to all, regardless of faith, background, income, um, religion, race, ability to pay. And um, this is based on our Jewish values that that we serve all to, to, to build the communities that we want to see in the world. And so, you know, historically, the Jewish community is a community of refugees and also our Jewish values are those that, that lead us to to engage in this work. And I love the university universality you spoke about and, and the power of love. And that's really why why we do this work. Um, but more practically, our network of Jewish agencies and federations around the country were geared to support Jews fleeing the pogroms of Eastern Europe and the anti-Semitism and discrimination that they experienced. Um, and they were created to welcome Jews coming to the United States and to help them build new lives here. And it is that expertise we've really gained through that work that we now use to support all communities who, who are in need. And, you know, certainly um, supporting Afghans who are evacuated, those who are allies was, was a top priority a year ago when, you know, over 75,000 Afghans were evacuated and were residing on military bases. Um, a very generous foundation came to us, the Shapiro Foundation of Boston and said, how can we work together to help evacuate these Afghans from the military bases to welcome them into the Jewish community um, and the broader community and, and, and how, how can we lead? And we partnered with them to encourage Jewish federations and Jewish communities, many of which had already been engaged in refugee resettlement work. Some were also new to the work um, to, to be able to mobilize to, to help welcome Afghans into our communities. And because of the generosity of this funder and the breadth and experience of our network, we were able to engage 15 communities across North America, 
um, to engage volunteers and casework support to resettle over 1,700 Afghans. And it's just been incredible to see the way that the Jewish community was able to mobilize to engage volunteers like Jonathan, who are so passionate um, and so skilled at, at, at being able to provide the services that, that Afghans need. And, and one of the critical pieces is that, as you may know, Philip, they were brought to the U.S. on a status called humanitarian parole, which is not the formal U.S. refugee resettlement program. And so there were a variety of, of additional needs that Afghans needed that weren't being provided for by the federal government. So housing, transportation, help finding jobs, um, enrolling in school, learning how to use the grocery store. These are all the critical needs that those coming to America need. And so it's really reliant on, on volunteer engagement to be able to do this, to create a welcoming situation and give them the tools that they need to thrive. And the last piece that I'll say is in many of the communities that we're funding in partnership with the Shapiro Foundation, there are interfaith partnerships. There are churches and mosques and synagogues working together uh, to partner, to to welcome and, and settle these Afghans in communities. And it's just been amazing to see that partnership. I don't know what I'm more blown away by. The fact that it's an interfaith partnership, despite what we see on the news all the time, is that faiths don't get along. And everywhere in the world, we're just all against each other. You know, you guys are coming together here. I don't know if that's more impressive or 1,700 people being helped resettle through, you know, a relatively small group, you know, 140 some different Jewish communities you'd mentioned. That's amazing. People in all those communities who absorb that first kind of wave of our refugee friends and allies. Just absolutely beautiful. With respect to employment and stuff or even, you know, the other elements of case management, I mean, certainly, you know, a good member of the community can help feed and help show them the ropes with what it's like to live in this city. But how are they, how are you guys capable of getting like employment things or special immigrant visa paperwork or the things that they'll need to really make a long-term go of it? Do you have specialists within the JFNA there that can do all that? Certainly. So through our network of Jewish human service agencies around the country, like the Jewish Family Service Agency um, of Greenwich that Jonathan is, is working with, they have skilled caseworkers who are experts in trauma support and um, benefits enrollment and job preparedness training, um, you know, ESOL training, et cetera. Uh, because of the experience that they have resettling other refugees, the asylum seekers and others coming to America. Um, but in many other situations, we'll partner with pro bono legal assistance. In most cases, our, our Jewish Family Service agencies do not provide legal assistance. Um, but we then partner with resettlement organizations like HIAS or other faith-based organizations and, and find pro bono legal support for them. And I'll throw it back to you, Jonathan, real quick with the brothers that you spent some time with, our Afghan allies there. Uh, were you surprised that to learn about a skill set or something that, that, that they could do that you thought, aha, I know the job for you in America? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, my advice to them was there's two priorities coming into this country brand new and trying to look for a job. One is the language. You know, we need to get enrolled in English classes as soon as possible. And, you know, as as uh, as Darcy was mentioning, like there's a lot of volunteers, whether they're giving lessons or, you know, even like uh, community colleges in the area that open up their doors or the town itself. So there's English lessons happening nonstop, which is really, really important. And the second thing I told them was, let's work to get your driver's license. Uh, so we went to the library, we got manuals, like, you know, all sorts of stuff, um, because I know that 
at least in the in the early months or maybe year of being here, being able to get around is you know is great. So you know at first like I I I put up a post on social media, people were donating bicycles. So you know and everybody was sharing bicycles in the community around here um, and making sure they had at least some transportation. Uh, the guys got jobs pretty early in the food services industry, and you know they were riding their bikes to to go to work and and working, and everything was going great. Um, I was in communication with with their bosses, for example, and you know making sure things weren't getting lost in translation. And now one of the brothers has a driver's license. We're looking for a car. I mean, things are really starting to to settle and get steady. Um, and I think it it happens. Each each person is so different. There are some people who come here with strong language skills and a specific career in mind. But, you know, I think it's more about talking to them and sitting and saying, what do you want to do here? What are your dreams? And then let's come up with like a really clear first couple of steps in order to head in that direction. And sometimes that first step is just getting any job. And, uh, you know, I think it's our job to help them get there. And I love the thread of the bicycle through this whole story from like the World War II era to now. I mean, this is like the multi-generational interfaith story of the love of a bicycle. (laughs) One of the bikes, it was pretty beat up. And I was like, you know, if I I knew one of the brothers had to bike pretty far to get to his job. So I was like, this needs a tune up. And, you know, I, I can barely pump pump air into the tire without causing a problem. So I took it to a bike shop in, in nearby and uh, when I got the bill for the for the repairs, it was more expensive for the repairs than it would have been just to buy a new bike. It was insane. But <laughs> honestly, like to see the look on their faces when you bring a nice like working bike over and now they can get around. I mean, it's like incredible. You know, it's just every 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 effort is 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 so worth it. You know, tenfold. Um, mm. I think it does mean a lot to them. Jonathan Cantor, Greenwich, Connecticut, such a beautiful story. Darcy, let's wrap here with how this is kind of affecting uh, the way the Jewish Federations of North America is looking at helping refugees all over. Because, no, quickly did we wrap on the global war on terrorism combat operations out of Afghanistan. Then, you know, we see this thing pop off with Russia and Ukraine and another just devastating story of people without a safe homeland Share with me how you guys are working to, you know, help make better days for them. Yeah, I'm really glad you asked that. I mean, it was really just when we got our Afghan resettlement initiative off the ground that Russia invaded Ukraine. And we thought, you know, what what are we going to do to support these people? There were Ukrainians already in the country uh, who couldn't go home. And we knew that many thousands more were going to be coming to the U.S. And so the the framework that we created um, through the Afghan resettlement program really allowed us to work quickly to develop a new system to support Ukrainians. And um, we now have, I think, 12, 12 communities now resettling Ukrainians. Many of them are those that are already resettling Afghans, and, and, and several of them are new. Um, and now we we know how to mobilize our volunteer networks. We know what kind of support the Jewish Family Service and other service providers need. We know about the partnerships that we've established in the community with other faith groups. And so it's really built up our muscle to be able to provide a robust welcoming system to those who are fleeing violence and coming to the U.S. Mm, outstanding. And if somebody wants more information now on how they can help support the initiatives that you guys are doing so wonderfully, uh, where do I get more information? I would say visit our website at jewishfederations.org and certainly, uh, you know, look me up and contact me. 
such an incredible story, uh, but the work you guys do, I, I, I think, is, is, is really the biggest thing here. The love of humans is what makes this world a better place. It is the tie that binds, and uh, you guys are doing it. So shalom to you both. Thank you so much for coming on CBSI and Veterans. Thank you very much. Thanks so much. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Ion Veterans ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Coriant has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Coriant has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Coriant's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Coriant.com. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcast starting May 8th. Access episodes early and ad-free with 48 Hours Plus on Apple Podcasts starting May 1st.